Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? Doing all right, Robert. First day back at work after Christmas. I'm a little, I'm a little worn out, but I'm doing okay. How are you? Yeah, same boat for me. Uh, I was off most of last week and yesterday, so yes, it is first day back working. Uh, lots of stuff to catch up on. Uh, did you get anything good for Christmas, Jasmine? Um, yeah, I got lots of good stuff. Shoes, athleta clothes. Nice. Um, my husband got me a car detailing that's happening tomorrow, and I think that's a really cool gift because I really need it. Yeah, who doesn't need their car detail? That's very true. It is, and it is, like, makes you feel like you got a new car. So that is, that's a cool gift. Yeah. Good, good job, Jasmine's husband. Secret name. No one knows what it is. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you you've been laughing at me. Uh, I got an espresso machine for for my birthday and Christmas. I'm, I'm envious of you. Yeah, but also you're just laughing at me failing and trying and failing again and just being really caffeinated on bad ca- bad <laughs> coffee drinks uh, as I'm working on trying to improve my ability to make coffee. Uh, well. so- when you get it, I want to I want to come over for your espresso. Yeah, yeah. Well, y- you know, I think I've got it pretty good now, but I it did I am like very jittery. <laughs> so, if I act crazy on this episode, that's probably why. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh it's since we didn't record last week, so since the last time we've recorded, there's been a lot of stories. So, the first one we're going to talk about today is friend of the show, uh Buddy Wheatley, who uh is I guess still the in the House of Representatives from the 65th House District in Northern Kentucky, he has announced that he is running for Secretary of State. Jasmine's going to talk to us about a very sad story about Henry Berg Bousseau, uh, who is the child of Karen Berg, uh, who died by suicide last week. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So uh, know that that's coming for sure. So that's just a bit of a content warning. And we'll, we'll say it again when we start talking about it. We're also going to talk about Savannah Maddox, who's dropped out of the governor's race. That was very surprising to me, surprising to a lot of people. But she told us why, gave us good information. We're going to talk about that, uh, how that shakes up the race. And then Jasmine's last going to talk about Governor Bashir going to Eastern Kentucky and talking a little bit about his long-term plan for the region. So without any more further ado, let's get started, started by talking about Buddy Wheatley. Jasmine, big news. Charles, do you remember that his name is Charles? Yeah, I do remember that because we've had him on the show before. But yeah, we we all just call him Buddy. (laughs) Yes, Charles Buddy Wheatley uh, is running for Secretary of State in 2023. Of course, Buddy lost re-election to the 65th House District back in November. uh, And and that was, you know, not too surprising to me. I think surprising to a lot of other people um, because his district had been a very, very Democratic-leaning, Covington-based House district. And in the current round of redistricting, he was given a significant amount of territory in southern Kenton County, which leans much, much more Republican. He lost election by about 300 votes out of, you know, several thousand casts. So it was, it was a low percentage. I think he lost by like two percentage points, like a 49-51 race or something like that. Um, and it was really sad. Uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people thought he was going to pull it out. Uh, and I, I was like thinking... He might get absolutely clobbered in this race. Of course, I'm not super familiar with how he runs for office. And I think a lot of the people who are more familiar with him as a campaigner were like, well, he's going to pull this out. And me just looking at the fundamentals of the district thinking this is going to be a really tough one to win. And and he came very close, uh, but was defeated for election. And, uh, you know, I learned in the aftermath that this is like the first time maybe in the history of the Kentucky legislature that there hasn't been someone from the city of Covington serving in the legislature. 
legislature. Of course, that was a big, big key to how the Republicans drew those maps. They split a bunch of those cities into lots and lots of small districts so that they could have lots of rural area incorporated in with all of Kentucky cities. So basically, uh, unless you're a city the size of Lexington or larger, it's really tough to get an actual person from your city into the legislature. So um, I will say before Wheatley lost his election, I I feel like he was probably the favorite to become the Democratic leader in the House. I I had talked to lots of people that were um, already talking to me about how they thought he'd be a good leader, that he was lining up support. And, uh, you know, it seemed likely that he was going to be willing, able to win the support of his caucus pretty easily and would probably become the leader. He's definitely interested in doing it. But in the immediate aftermath of the election, it it seemed like, you know, he was going to shift gears he did seem like he wanted a bigger job going into this year. Uh, and, and after he lost, it seemed like he was going to run for something. And, and I think probably he wanted to run for attorney general. But, of course, he has only been planning to run for office next year for a very short period of time. And I think Pam Stevenson had been laying the groundwork for quite a while to run for attorney general. She jumped in first. And so Buddy Wheatley is now running for secretary of state. You know, Kentucky, among the offices that Kentucky elects in this year, like this presidential minus one year, is what I kind of call it the year before we elect the president. I would say like the ones that are the most kind of substantial jobs are, of course, the governor and then the attorney general. And then third is the secretary of state. You actually have quite a bit to do at secretary of state, um, which isn't to say you have nothing to do as the treasurer or the auditor or the, the secretary of agriculture. But but I think, you know, it's the one that benefits the most by having somebody who knows what they're doing. I get really nervous if there's somebody who does, doesn't know what they're doing in those three jobs versus the other ones where I'm like, well, you have a, a well-developed staff that mostly does the job for you. So, Jasmine, what do you think about this so far? with uh you know buddy wheatley running for secretary of state um do you think that he would have been a uh, a good candidate for attorney general i mean obviously uh we have the the ticket that that's taking shape what do you feel about it so far i think he would have been a good candidate for attorney general but i also don't think it would have been a, a good idea to run against pamela stevenson she she campaigns well she's the first black woman to run for that position um, and I think it would not like look good for a white Democrat male to primary her um, for that. And I also think, you know, these these state races coming up, we absolutely need Bashir to win. And these down ballot races are going to be tougher to win. And so you kind of you want a good team running with Andy Bashir. And I think if if Rocky Adkins ends up running for agricultural commissioner, we don't know that, but that's what's kind of been rumored. If you have like him and then also Buddy Wheatley and Andy Bashir, you, you just have a lot of white dudes. Um so I'm glad that Pamela Stevenson is running for attorney general. Um but I think that an attorney is well suited for the secretary of state position too, um, because it, you know, it has to do with election law. And so I think Buddy Wheatley is also a good fit for that as well. 
Yeah, current uh, current Secretary of State is an attorney by trade. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you know that that is probably true that we we benefit by having an attorney in that job. Um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's really important to have somebody uh, who is not a white man on the ticket in 2023. Um, given that it's 2023, um, having a lot of white people on the ticket is not something that's unusual through Kentucky's history, of course. But uh, that is. Not something um, we are super proud of. We just need to, you know, have have something to do with it. So, um, a little bit more about about Buddy Wheatley. So he was born, raised, and I believe he spent like almost his entire life in Northern Kentucky, specifically Covington, specifically the Covington area. He went to Ludlow High School, which is up there, and spent 20 years as a firefighter. Uh, he retired from the Covington Fire Department in 2008, having served his last three years there as the chief, the, you know, the chief of the fire department. Um, he's got some cool pictures of himself in like his fire gear fighting fires, which is, you know, that's, that's, that's good uh, election material for sure. In his years as fire chief, Wheatley actually attended NKU's Chase Law School, which is up there in Northern Kentucky as well. And after retiring from public service uh, from the fire fire, uh, from the fire department, uh, he went into practice as a lawyer working for the public sector labor unions, like several of the public sector labor unions. While a firefighter, Wheatley was very active in IAFF. I believe that's the International Association of Firefighters, but don't quote me on that. Um, but anyways, that is the Firefighters Union. Wheatley was very active in that group, later went on to become a, a lawyer for a public sector labor union. So, so you know, kind of going from one thing to the other, moving to a different job, retiring um, from, uh, you know, a hazardous job, uh, getting his pension, being able to, to secure a second job. So that's, you know, very, very common type thing to do for people who work in those hazardous public sector jobs to have a second career after they're done, after they've earned their retirement. Um, and then in 2018, Arnold Simpson, who had been the, the state representative from up there in the 65th district, he retired after 12 terms in the Kentucky House. Buddy Wheatley was the only Democrat to run for that seat, and he won election to the Covington-based, you know, 65th district with 58% of the vote. Some people had said that district was competitive, uh, and, you know, as long as Buddy Wheatley was running in that district, as it was composed that time, it was not. He won 58% uh, of the vote the first time he ran, and then he ran again in 2020. He won by an even larger margin, and that, of course, 2020 was not as good a year. In fact, it was a quite bad year for Democrats as opposed to 2018, which is a pretty good year. And in 2020, he won by 60% of the vote, actually improving his margin in a worse year. So that's that is something to, to that he could certainly hang his hat on. And then, as I already mentioned, you know, he lost re-election in 2022 entirely due to redistricting. The Covington portion of the district that 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 Buddy Wheatley ran in, he got 80% of the vote. So that is just goes to show you that he's pretty popular up there in Covington. Okay, so I think it's pretty unlikely that Wheatley is going to face serious primary opposition in the Secretary of State's race. Uh, His general election opponent will likely be Michael Adams, the incumbent who, you know, it's highly possible that he draws some level of Republican liberty type challenger in in the primary. Um, But I I do think that Michael Adams stands a very good chance to beat that back and to become the general election opponent to run for re-election. So kind of how how does that stack up with Buddy Wheatley running against Michael Adams? Okay, so Michael Adams is the Republican statewide official, in my opinion, 
who I think is the most popular with Democrats. Um, and I think, oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Jasmine is agreeing definitely. with me. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Not as hot a take as it, uh, I thought it might be. Um, I think he, li- I don't know. I don't know about this one, I, but I do think it's possible that he has some crossover, c- crossover appeal for some progressives. You know, if they don't know who Buddy Wheatley is, they're looking, they're like, well, I think Michael Adams kind of did a good job. I guess I'll vote for him. Um, even though the person might be a Democrat, that's certainly, something. I don't, I don't know if I'd say crossover with progressives, but crossover with some democrats okay i guess i think a progressive as as a little further a little more plugged in maybe and i don't think that they would vote for michael adams fair enough fair enough um adams uh has been firmly in support of the idea of elections which is something that you know seemed (laughs) a little shaky coming out of 2020 for the republican party uh, I think he earned pretty significant kudos from mainstream voters by holding fast against a lot of the liberty crowd who wanted very strange election reforms. I'm thinking a lot about a lot of the bills that Adrian Southworth in the Senate or tried to advance. He said that those were bad. He was willing to call them out and willing to make fun of them in, in interesting and funny ways, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there were also a lot of liberty candidates running in these primaries who lost, who called for recounts in races that weren't specifically or, you know, weren't really all that close um and he was willing to call out that that was kind of making a mockery of the system and um you know that he's he's been he's been firmly in favor of elections which is not something we can say is uh you know something that uniformly all republicans are in favor of but uh, i mm-hmm. think that this is strong a strong part of his caucus and that's he's certainly identified more with kind of the more mainstream uh people inside of the the republican party so Will it? Will the fact that he's done this help Adams in 2023? I, I think it will. I think it actually probably will in the primary, and I think it will in the general election. It seems like voters are interested in having elections, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I think that you know Michael Adams is going to benefit from the the way that he's run the Secretary of State's office this term. However. You know, Buddy Wheatley has a lot of strengths of his own, especially his strong appeal with union voters. He is somebody who's been a – I mean, he's not just somebody who, like, supports unions or who has a lot of people who are friends of his who are in unions, like a lot of the folks uh, who are strong union um, Democrats. He actually was a active member in a union. He was a guy fighting fires. He was in the public sector union. And then he spent a significant amount of his career working on labor issues in the courtroom. He was both a lawyer for and a member of a union. So, you know, he's intimately aware of what that's like. And this is a state with a lot of you know, strong union membership, uh, even among states in our region, uh, we, we are pretty high uh, among uh, states in the South in terms of u- union membership. So that's something that he strong, has a strong, uh, strong support above in his favor. In addition, he's a public sector union retiree and an expert in public sector union issues, has a lot of issue and a, a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience about pensions, public pensions, which are always a hot topic, maybe not something that's intersects with the Secretary of State's office every single day but in every race even the secretary of states this is a, an important issue the teachers were a key group of voters in 2019 certainly putting andy Bashir over the top not not just in terms of their support but also their ability to go out and walk precincts in terms of their ability to volunteer and everything and i think that whole group is likely to be strong supporters of wheatley even against michael adams so i think that you know we're looking at a lot of the advantages that michael adams has coming out of his primary having 
having done a pretty decent job for a Republican in the Secretary of State's office. But Buddy Wheatley has a lot of strengths going for him as well. As we've said, it's going to be tough for any Democrat to win in 2023. That's not any different for Buddy Wheatley. And, you know, adding to the mix, Michael Adams is very popular with mainstream voters. It, you know, that I do think that there's a lot of people that are looking at this and saying, well, Buddy Wheatley is toast. But I think don't count him out prematurely. Let's let the race develop. He has his own advantages that I just mentioned. And the other thing, Jasmine, I think that you'll echo me on this. He's like the most likable person that you will ever meet. Uh, if you meet him in person, you walk away thinking, what a cool, nice person. Um, he's interesting. He's fun to talk to. He's got any, he's just very personal. He's somebody that you think should be in office. So I think that he's got a lot of campaign stuff working for him too. So Jasmine, what is your uh, thoughts on the race as it's starting to develop right now? I agree with everything that you said. I think that he does a really good job of connecting with people. And so I, I think it, you know, is all about like how much he's able to do that and how much ground he's able to cover across the state. Because while he is super well-known in Covington, um, a lot of people probably don't know who he is. Um, And I, you know, I don't know, does he have like buddy in parentheses on the ballot when he runs? Yeah, I think he does. I I do think people want to vote for a guy named Buddy. I think that is an advantage for him. Yeah, I seems like a man of the people. Yeah, there was somebody there. There was somebody who ran for on the Democratic ticket for uh, Agriculture Secretary, whose name was Joe Trimble. I don't actually remember that person's first name in the primary, and he he lost like every home every county except for his home county, and he won Trimble County. (laughs) So. Uh, or maybe it was a different county. It was like he only won the person whose name was the county. So this is, yes, people do vote on the names, and voting for somebody named Buddy is pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I still think it will be a tough race because, like you said, and I agree, Michael Adams is probably the most popular Republican in office. Um, but, I, you know, I think he'll he'll work hard and give it a fair shot for sure. Absolutely. So that that's that race. Of course, it has a long way to develop. You know, Buddy Wheatley is just getting in. Uh, you know, he also has a, a, a good ability to raise money. He, he raised, uh, you know, not quite six figures, but he raised a lot of money in his race for state representative. Um, he's got a lot of union support in that as well, you know, able to get money from most of the union as somebody who, uh, you know, is a strong supporter of unions and, and would be as a secretary of state. So that that's something else that that's a little bit of a wrinkle there. So there you go. That's that. Um, all right. Switching gears quite a bit. Uh, Jasmine, why don't you tell us about Henry Berg Brousseau? Yeah. So, you know, like we said at the top of the show, a, a content warning here for discussing suicide and, and also like anti-trans legislation. Um, so that's that. But um, we would have talked about this last week, but we didn't have a show, but we definitely wanted to talk about it today. Henry Berg Brousseau died by suicide on December 16th. Henry was a trans rights activist and transgender himself. Um, and we're also talking about it because he's he's also the son of Senator Karen Berg. He was the deputy press secretary at the Human Rights Campaign And at just 16 years old, he testified before the Kentucky Senate Education Committee against an anti-trans bathroom bill. Um, And his testimony actually made it on to John Oliver tonight. And the clip showed 
several senators, Republican senators, commending Henry for his bravery and then voting to advance the bathroom bill. He also organized a protest against conversion therapy in high school um, and worked on a lot of local causes. He worked with the Fairness Campaign, and he was also a founding member of an LGBTQ plus fraternity at George Washington University. And so I, I think when you look at what he did over his short life, um, he was he had just truly dedicated his life to advocating for fellow trans people. Um, and, and he'd done so much at such a young age. Senator Berg released a statement on December 20th saying that the lack of acceptance took a toll on Henry and that he long struggled with mental illness, not because he was trans, but born from his difficulty finding acceptance. She also said the vitriol against trans people is not happening in a vacuum. It is not just a way of scoring political points by exacerbating the culture wars. It has real world implications for how transgender people view their place in the world and how they are treated as they just try to live their lives. Um, and I, I think she's certainly right about all of that. Um, thankfully, the bill that Henry testified against when he was in high school did not pass in 2014, but that was also before the Republican supermajority. Even in the first years with a Republican supermajority, anti-trans legislation um, wasn't always getting very far. Um, however, last session, the General Assembly passed a bill banning transgender girls from playing on girls' sports teams, and that ban applies to sixth grade and up. Um, and that's because of Karen Berg. Um, Karen Berg filed a floor amendment that would remove elementary school students from the bill. And the Senate actually adopted that um, for Senator Berg. Uh, there was just one Republican, Will Schroeder, who voted against the bill with her amendment or voted against her amendment. Um, and so, I mean, this is just like truly a tragedy and absolutely devastating. Um, and the session, a new session is about to start and we're likely to see more anti LGBTQ plus legislation in this upcoming session. Um, Representative Bill Wesley, I think already has a working draft, like has pre-filed a, a, an anti-trans bill and I just can't imagine what it will be like for Senator Berg to see those bills and have to watch her colleagues vote for them. I just can't imagine what that will be like for her. Yeah, I I mean I I I, I can't either. There there you know she she's a she's willing to speak her mind on issues that seem doomed in the legislature you know she had one of the most memorable uh committee speeches last year when she spoke out about an anti-abortion bill um but mm -hmm. you know it's just you know that having to talk about something that you know just the idea of led directly to the you know the death of a child a son like that's that's just impossible to imagine, um, and that—that's a reality that that Senator Berg is is likely to face. I mean, this this entire entire story is just so devastating. Um, you know, like Henry had so much that 
made it look like he had a lot of things together, right? I mean, he was like a leader in this movement. He was doing stuff like founding this fraternity, speaking out on bills in front of the legislature, had a job working for the human rights campaign. And it just goes just goes to show you that like, you know, the the vitriol and, and just the, the, the place that we are in with our culture means that even people who who seem like you know they they're they're strong in their identity and and they they're they they have like they have it you know kind of together like it, it it's just it's just really hard uh to to even to even overcome the even overcome the the place that we're at um and in you know, a we're losing we're just losing so many people uh so many trans people because of of just the pl- the 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 lack of shame that some people have in in their ability to just say horrible things about trans people, especially about trans children. Of course, Henry Berg Rousseau was a trans child at one point. He was speaking out about this um, when when he was just 16. Um, and, and, you know, so much of this, so much of these bills are about trans kids. And, and that's the place where we're seeing so much of the vitriol placed. And, you know, um, I, I'm sure I'm sure Henry saw the direction it was going, the the difficulty he had in his own youth and just thinking about all the other little kids who are seeing grown senators, grown legislators attack their identity, attack them and tell them that they are wrong and that the person that the people that they are is just broken or or, or misplaced. And that's just it's just really hard for anybody. Um, and that's but that's that's where we are. That's where we are. And that's that's um, what we're having to fight against. Um, and really, I mean, the truth is we're losing that fight. So, um, it's really, yeah, you know, he was testifying against anti-trans legislation when he was in high school and anti-trans bills have only just dramatically increased across the country. And so, you know, it's, it's not something where (laughs) there's been clear progress it's getting more dangerous, I, I think. And um, I, I hope that Senator Berg's colleagues in the legislature see that. Um, although, I, you know, I'm not sure if they will or not. And I've seen so many people um, offering public condolences. I haven't seen any Republicans, though. You know, I hope that they offered her those privately. Um, but I've seen a lot of silence from Republicans. Maybe there, maybe there are some, um, but I haven't seen any. And I, and I kind of even like went out and looked on social mm. media. Yeah. You know, I think that there's a couple of places that I'm angry about this. And of course the, the people that I'm the most mad at are the people that are leading this charge, you know, leading, filing these bills, speaking mm-hmm. out loudly about this. And that's of course the place where I'm the people I'm the most angry at, but, but I mean, right behind them are the people um, who are on that side of the aisle that that see that you know talking a certain way, attacking trans kids, attra- attacking trans people, uh, that 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 scores political points, that that earns them kudos from their base, that that's a way to kind of shore up their own position, uh, knowing what it's doing to people, to children, to parents, and and giving into it and saying, well, I guess I'll do this. You know that that's the next group of people who I I'm really angry at, um, 
And and I think that that's a large group of people in the Republican-led legislature. I do think that that's that's probably the, the, the larger part of their caucus that won't speak out about this, that doesn't believe it's right, um, but isn't going to do anything to, to stop its spread. Um, and I certainly hope I'm wrong. Um, this is hopefully a wake-up call to a lot of these people. Hopefully it's a lot more than that. Uh, more than anything, it's just a terrible tragedy, first, foremost, and mainly. Uh, but but beyond that, I do hope that some people see this and say, wow, we can't keep going down this path because it's killing people. Um, and and that's, that's where we're at. Yeah, it, it's just absolutely devastating. And, you know, from from everything that I've read over the last week, you could just see that Henry truly left an impact on people. Um, I saw so many people in politics and advocacy um, in nonprofit spaces, just sharing how incredible and compassionate he was. Um, and may his memory be a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, switching gears once again, of course, that's a really, really tough topic. Um, but it's one that's really important to talk about because it is, you know, something that we're likely going to be facing in the next couple of months as the legislature kind of ramps up its session. But, uh, uh, you know, there's lots of other stuff to talk about, too. And we're going to talk about Savannah Maddox right now. So, Jasmine, uh, Savannah Maddox announced last Tuesday that she was dropping out of the race for governor. And I was surprised by that. Were you surprised? Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, uh, I, I, I was quite shocked. Yeah. So she said in her announcement that the reason she was dropping out was funding. She said that despite significant fundraising efforts, she was unable to attain the resources that she needed to win. So here's the numbers behind that. As of June, Savannah Maddox had raised about $210,000. Daniel Cameron at that point had $708,000. Ryan Quarles had $875,000 and Kelly Craft had amassed $752,000. So everybody else had between three and four times the amount of money that she had. Uh, Maddox, though, was squarely in fourth place. Eric Dieters was in fifth. I think there were like 12 people that are running. Eric Dieters has about $94,000. She clearly did trail the pack, but, you know, $210,000 is nothing. Um, But, of course, all of them are looking at Andy Bashir, who has raised $4.5 million for this election. Um, yeah. So if you're Savannah Maddox and looking at the fact that you've worked really hard and you've raised $210,000, are you going to beat Andy Bashir with four and a half million dollars? You know, maybe she, maybe she had a point there, um, in terms of dropping out. So, you know, uh, Maddox dropping out changes things a lot, I think. Uh, and I, I really thought she had a, an outside chance to win. Um, you know, I, I thought that she was being kind of undercounted in her, uh, and a lot of people handicapping this race. I don't think money is everything. And I think she had a message that cut through uh, and appealed to a significant portion of the Republican base. And now uh, her voters have to go somewhere else. Um, so that's, I think, the uh, 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 open question. So are they all going to drift to a new candidate? Of course, a lot of people have floated the idea of Matt Bevin running again. I don't know if her voters are interested in Matt Bevin. Uh, I don't know if Savannah Maddox likes Matt Bevin. I think that, you know, progressives dislike Savannah Maddox and Matt Bevin probably in equal measure. But I don't necessarily that think that that means that they are necessarily like aligned as people. I just think that they're equally detested by progressives. Um, could they all move to Matt Bevin? Maybe. Could they move to Eric Dieter, somebody who is in the same kind of vein in terms of like being a strong liberty candidate? 
or is somebody else going to jump in and run? You know, not maybe uh, maybe willing to stick it out without being able to raise as much money. Um, but my, they, all of that, you know, caucus might flock to them. Um, could could that happen, or or could one of the big three step up and and win them over? That's that's another question. Kelly Craft, Ryan Quarles, and Daniel Cameron. Maybe one of them could win them over. That's probably the most likely spot to, to have happen. I think. Jasmine, do you think? It will be a new candidate or one of the big three. And if it's one of the big three, who do you think is most likely to um, collect these voters uh, as the Republican primary heats up? I mean, whenever I saw that she was dropping out, my first thought was it must be because Bevin's about to get in. And and I'm not sure like how closely aligned they are, but he was like when he ran for governor, and when he ran for Senate before that, I mean, he was kind of like the Tea Party candidate. Um, I would say Savannah Maddox is even further to the right than Matt Bevin, but he's probably like the closest person that would fit that mold if he got in the race. Um, because I'm not sure how seriously or how well-known Eric Dieters is to people. And I, I think he is different than all of the candidates. Yeah, that's very true. I, I think like among her most hardcore supporter supporters, they know who Eric Dieters is, but the larger group of them, the, you know, the larger massing of people who kind of feel the same way, they probably know less about Eric Dieters. And also they probably are the ones that maybe, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I, I think you're right about Matt Bevan um, in terms of, you know, they may be uh, a group of people who are uh, interested in him because of the way that he ran his previous races. But he's also held office already. And, you know, yeah. beyond beyond just like how he believed, he like just was bad at it. Um, right. Like, I think even Republicans, maybe even conservative ones, like I think everyone was just like tired of him no matter what he did. Yeah, it was very chaotic, and, and it's not like they won a lot of battles. You know, they, they amassed a lot of power and were unable to wield it when he was the governor, right? Like, Democrats kept, like, su- successfully putting up a lot of roadblocks to things like vouchers, to things like, you know, there were a lot of, uh, like, education reforms that they wanted to do, like, tax reforms they wanted to do, and Democrats kept being able to kind of, like, head them off despite the fact that, you know, there's a Republican supermajority in both chambers and they held the governor's office. Um, and that's not really about ideology. That's just about, like, him being bad at being governor. Um, so that could be, like, a hindrance to him. I think it will be. But, yeah. you know, I do think his ideology is probably closest to them. Um, but you know, we'll see, is he going to get in? Maybe will he be able to raise more money than Savannah Maddox has been able to raise? That's another question. Um, he, 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 he can also self fund though. Yeah. So he probably would be able to have money, but I think the most likely thing, I think I ultimately agree that it'll probably want to be one of the big three, um, who could win over the the most um, of her of Savannah Maddox's base. And I'm not really sure who it is, but I think it could be Kelly Craft because I guess just what I've seen from her campaign, she she kind of is like going after like immigration stuff and, and things like things that like get some of those further right supporters like riled up yeah um so i could see that and she has max wise as her lieutenant candidate who has kind of been one of the um 
like school choice people. So that that would be my my most likely, but I think it's hard to say. I think the person who needs this group of voters the most is probably Daniel Cameron. Yeah, I I agree. He needs them the most. Yeah, and I think, you know, given that his entire campaign so far is I got Donald Trump's endorsement, uh, this is a group of voters who is very enamored with at least the ideology of, of Trumpism, you know, depending on how they feel about Trump right now, um, given, you know, kind of his waning prospects in 2024. Like, that's that's kind of an interesting open question. But yeah, these are the type of voters that Daniel Cameron, Cameron really needs. I think Ryan Quarles is trying to win without uh, strong support in that group of people. And I think Kelly Kraft, yeah, I think you're right. Like, she... She certainly is kind of just like trying to find the message that resonates the most with people. And she may have hit on one that does appeal to those people. Um, we will see. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of open as to who they flock to. You know, if Daniel Cameron is or excuse me, if if Ryan Quarles is just running way ahead of everybody, you know, maybe they'll just go to him because they think he stands the best chance to beat Andy Bashir, which is something mm-hmm. they want to do. Yeah. But the last thing I'll say is about Savannah Maddox. Like, I don't think she's going away. I think, I mean, you know, a lot of people look at her and say she's crazy. I don't think that that's appropriate at all. I think she's very, very smart. I think she's actually quite good at what she does. It's just that what she does is reprehensible, in my opinion. Um, And, you know, I don't think we're done seeing her. I think she's going to run for statewide something eventually. And, uh, you know, the I think that the you know, Kentucky public servant who she is most closely aligned with is Rand Paul. And I think it's possible that she runs for his seat. I mean, this will be his third term in the Senate that he's kind of just getting underway. Um, By the time he's done, he will have served, you know, whatever that is, 18 years in the Senate. He may be ready to hang it up. Maybe not. I don't know. 18 years. Yeah. That's a, it. it doesn't like feel like that long, I guess, because I was an adult already when he got elected. Well, he's just now starting his third term and actually has not even yeah. started his third term yet. It's just in six years. It and, will have been 18 mm-hmm. years. Um, and so he, you know, he may want to hang it up after that. Like, that's a long time in Washington. Some people really thrive on it. I, I go back and forth as to whether or not I think Rand Paul enjoys his job or not. I think he probably does, too. Uh, And so I wonder if he is going to hang it up after his third term. If he does, I think Savannah Maddox is an interesting person who may be interested in taking on his mantle. So uh, whether it's that or something different, I definitely don't think we've heard the last of Savannah Maddox. And uh, we are likely set up for quite a long time of having to deal with um you know her and the things that she believes which is yeah i mean she's like my age yeah which means she's that that means she's significantly younger than me which is (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah all right well that's enough about savannah maddox there's always enough about savannah maddox let's talk for the last thing we wanted to talk about actual some policy stuff about governor bevin announcing a long-term plan for eastern kentucky flood victims Okay, so last week, Governor Bashir announced plans for um, some long-term housing for victims of the devastating flooding in eastern Kentucky. And he went to Hanman to make his announcement, which was one of the places that was hit really hard by the floods. Um, and so the project that was announced, the first site is going to be in Talcum, which is in Knott County. Um, Bashir said he expects the project um 
to be like on a plot of flat high ground and it'll include new housing, a community center, upgraded infrastructure, including water and potentially a school. And it is going to be called the Olive Branch Community. Initial construction is set to begin in early 2023, so pretty soon. Efforts are still ongoing, though, to acquire land in other surrounding areas. This is just the first one that's announced. Funding for the project is going to come from a combination of COVID relief money, funds that were allocated by the legislature in the special session, state transportation money, and then donations um, from collections for flood victims. I will note that the legislature's bill did not include any dedicated housing funding. Um, and so housing advocates are, are going to have to go up against like education and other areas for that funding because there's not any dedicated money there. The state is also giving $600,000 from donations to um a housing advocate group for building homes and $200,000 for people to repair homes. And I think $600,000, you know, that sounds like a decent amount of money, but that, that doesn't build a lot of houses. Um, and the need is much greater <laughs> than that. Scott McReynolds, who's the head of the housing development Alliance has said that Eastern Kentucky will need um, at least 2,300 houses which is an estimated cost of more than six hundred million. Um, so yeah, and twenty three hundred a lot to be done. Twenty three hundred houses isn't that many houses, you know that that's like yeah, yeah, and and you know so I don't know what their assessment of need is there. I mean they're probably good at their job, um, but yeah, that's that's a lot of houses. But yeah, you do the math. You think about how much a house costs to buy. Uh, and how much it would cost to build that many houses, you start getting into a lot of money really quickly. $600,000 certainly is not going to cut it, for sure. Yeah, I think it's set to build eight right now. And Bashir said that over 700 people are still staying in state parks or travel trailers. And, of, of course, that number doesn't even include people who are still in their homes, but their homes are damaged or... You know, they're not really in great living condition, but they can't afford to make the necessary repairs. And it doesn't include people who, you know, their homes may be in good shape, but they can't really leave their houses because of other problems with like land and bridges and things like that. Because there's there's so there's so much work that needs to be done. There are still bridges that haven't been repaired and people aren't really able to safely leave their homes. And so that 700 plus number it doesn't include a lot of people who are still in like really grave need facing really serious challenges and yet undercounted in that in that number yeah absolutely uh, and that that's that's true up and down the the board in terms of like ha how we're assessing need down there um and really everywhere where a lot of these natural disasters happen where you have just a lot of people who meet a certain criteria like they live in a trailer they, they've been living in a FEMA trailer and yet there's a lot of other people who just, you know, aren't doing that, but still have a lot of needs. Right. And so FEMA has recently made changes that have made it easier for some people to get approved for aid. More than three fifths of the Eastern Kentucky applicants have gotten some type of aid, but some type uh, doesn't mean that it's what they need during the special such 
special session, Representative Angie Hatton um, said that people were insulted with the offers they were getting from FEMA. And so, you know, so many people are still displaced and, and have huge damages and repairs. And, you know, we we now have the first phase of development for that area, but um, so much work needs to be done. And it, it hasn't really happened super quickly so far. Yeah, I mean, you're you're exactly right. And, and, you know, here in Kentucky, we're doing our best to advocate as much as we can for our people. Uh, You know, given the climate, like we are just facing a lot of serious issues. I mean, as soon as these floods happen, you know, all of a sudden we had hurricane damage down in Florida, you know, just a couple weeks ago. Really ongoing right now, we have like this crazy snowstorm that's going on in Buffalo that's killed dozens of people. Like, you know, we're having we're having weather disaster after weather disaster. And it is like hard for these federal aid agencies to like keep supporting people in Mm -hmm. need just because so much keeps happening. Um, And this, I think this this solution, this idea that that Governor Bashir is embarking on is the type of thinking that we need to really kind of deal with this on the long on a longer term basis where we're building new communities. We're kind of re we're we're moving communities away from places that have more marginal land um, that that's more prone to flooding that have a lot of issues with it and moving to areas inside of these reach still inside of the region i think that's very important inside mm-hmm. of not county close by that's significantly safer to build on and significantly flat high ground um that that isn't as prone to to these kind of climate related disasters as the ones before of course when it comes to doing all of those things doing this longer term aid uh, a longer term planning uh, it takes a lot longer to get off the ground. It takes a lot longer to actually think about. The early stages are key, but often include just a lot of like planning and not actually doing anything. And that gets to be really frustrating when there's so many people who have so many unmet needs. So, you know, that's something I, I heard, I've seen quite a bit. You know, there was that article, I see you linked it down here from uh, Olivia mm-hmm. Croth about about the folks in Eastern Kentucky who are facing significant needs and, and feel, do feel left behind. Um, by by state government, by federal government, um, because of all the needs that they're facing and the fact that they haven't, you know, um, they haven't really been able to see a lot of relief, despite the fact that this is almost a year ago that this has all happened. So, you know, understand that completely. Uh, but I do think that this is a step in the right direction. I certainly hope it, 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 you know, no matter what happens in terms of who leads the state government, uh, who's leading the legislature, that we can get this get this thing moving. It's it's going to take a lot more money than has been allocated now. The housing stuff that was key inside of the special session. We talked about that when it was going on. You know, there was a lot of money allocated, but that was one of the things that leaders in the region, Republican legislators in the region, were really pushing for was more de- dedicated funding for housing. And we do need that. We need we need that not just in Eastern Kentucky in in these areas where the floods are happening. We need it in Western Kentucky, and really we need it everywhere uh, because housing is in short supply. Housing is ridiculous in terms of its cost right now. It's only gone up. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we're having a lot of issues around that. And, uh, yeah, we need we need to build more stuff, build more places for people to live. So, yeah. Jasmine, that's good information. Anything else you want to say about it? No, I think that covers it. All right. All right. Well, a lot of stuff we talked about, a lot of uh, political stories, some real big tragedies, and, you know, hopefully some policy stuff that's going to set us in a better direction moving forward. Ah, there you go. Enough uh, for this week. We will be getting back to having guests soon. Uh, I mean, it is kind of the holidays, and we got a lot of 
kind of asks in the air. We'll see if we get anybody gets back to us. The <laughs> yeah, session's we're, we're doing the best we can. The right session's now. getting <laughs> yeah. This session gets started in like a week, so I do think the next time we talk, we will be off and yeah. running uh, in day one. So I do think you know that the way that these odd number sessions work is they usually go for about a week or two, like about a week, I think usually. Then they take a big long break, and so we do expect to maybe have some legislators, uh, maybe some new legislators uh, who haven't. Um, you know, who haven't experienced session yet, talk about their first week and the things that they learned. So we'll see. We'll see what's going on. Um, but until then, until next week, uh, Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. Um, we also have a periodic newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash myoldkentuckypodcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Spend all my money.